Well, I'm especially excited about this morning's sermon text. It's one of my favorite topics anyway in the Bible, in which I think God's people can find so much relief from our sorrows, so much solace in our troubles, so much rest from our worry. But never before have I seen it more appropriate than right now. In, in a way that only God could orchestrate, the longings that the last 15 months have put in us are named even specifically in this text and brought to resolution in the most beautiful of ways. And I'll just name a few of the things that our hearts are hungry for right now. I was just a few days ago at the choir gathering that you read about last week, and many of you were there at Dave and Karen Tolles' party barn. And if you weren't there, you should have seen the eagerness with which all of us just magnetic, like pulled us all right together, sat down, ate. We could not wait to be together. We could not wait to eat together with people that we love. There is an eagerness on all of our hearts to just sit down with people we love and have a meal together. And if as many people as came to that choir gathering come up here in a month We're not going to have enough chairs for all of you guys. There's so many people that gathered there so eager to just sit down and eat together. I have had dinner at somebody's house other than my own for the last three nights in a row. And for some of you who are, you know, you're ready to party and get back into life, it's been that way for you as well. This is a time when most people are either eager to get that last dose of the vaccine in them and get out and be with people and eat, or we're just already doing it, right? It's a season when we want to eat together. At the same time, I mean, we may be ready to party, but we've got some sorrows from the last year that we're still working on resolving, right? We, we always have death kind of hanging over us at, at any given point. But usually when you go through, you know, your cancer year or the year when you went through this treatment or your surgery year or whatever it was, it, it feels a little closer, right? You're, you're more aware of what's going to come for you one day. And we have all had to wrestle through that as a people for the last year. And we're like, death has just hung over us. We've had to wear these masks that keep reminding us that one day death is going to come for us. Some of us, it's hit very close to home and we have lost loved ones or we We have grieved with those who have lost loved ones. So the reality of death, the reality of sorrow are so close in our hearts. I've sat with people who have lost loved ones and wept with them. It's not been an easy year. You know that. I don't have to tell you. And then on top of that, I don't know that any time in my life it's ever been harder to be a Christian. Uh, Our enemies are quicker now to heap up shame and reviling on us than they used to be. It's more scornful, more shameful to be a Christian in the public square now. And as if that weren't bad enough, many people who bear the name of Christ, some of them genuine Christians, some probably imposters, are saying things publicly that are not helpful and make us look even worse than our enemies would want to paint us out to be. And so we're approaching a season where it's more embarrassing to be a Christian than it normally is. And so we bring to this text this morning an eagerness to just go with somebody we love and sit down and eat, a bigger awareness of our own coming death than we normally have, more sorrows than we brought a year ago, and perhaps a greater sense of shame and embarrassment that's been hurled on us by others. And the reason I'm bringing all that up 
as the Lord is about to resolve all of that, I think, in the reading and the proclaiming of his word. He's going to invite us this morning to see past our troubles and sorrows and see the day that is waiting for us when all of these desires are fulfilled. So, if you would, let's read together Isaiah 25. We're going to read verses 6 through 9 of a coming day when all of those desires are going to be satisfied in Christ Jesus. Here are the words of the prophet. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The words of the Lord. So what we have in these words is an invitation to the greatest feast in all of human history. That is the marriage supper of the Lamb, which will inaugurate Jesus Christ's new and final kingdom over all of the earth. And through them, I think the Lord means to do a few things in your life. First, to invite you to this feast as both guest and bride. And secondly, to stir in your heart a deep longing to be there, a deep sense of hope of the blessings that are coming to God's people so that we can be well-equipped to face the sorrows of life and holiness and in patience. This is what hope can do for us. The Lord wants to lay that hope before us this morning. So first I'll tell you kind of the context of what Isaiah is talking about here, and then we're going to dive deep into these image, images of how wonderful this feast is going to be. So these words are about a feast that is called in other parts of the Bible the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Uh, this is the feast that kicks off the final eternal kingdom of Jesus. Jesus Christ. Now, if you've ever studied much about the end times or if you've ever watched what people have to say about it on TV, you know that there is a lot of drama coming to the earth surrounding Jesus' return, right? The rise of the Antichrist, the return of Jesus, a great battle, the resurrection of the dead. By the end of it, the heavens and the earth are going to wear out like an old t-shirt and break. There's some dramatic stuff that's going to come. When all of that is done, Sometimes we forget about where it's all going to land and how the dust is going to settle. This is the beginning of once the dust has settled, here is what Jesus sets up forever. He makes a new heavens. He makes a new earth that is free of all of the problems of this earth. 
And he has, by this point, already given to his people new resurrection bodies that are free of all the ailments and desires for sin that our bodies have. He then sets up his eternal kingdom where he reigns from the new Jerusalem, and we, his people, live with him in prosperity, in worship, in authority, ruling this kingdom, in joy, and in happiness forever with him. That's where it's all headed. And this final age of earth's history, which will go on forever, well, you can imagine it deserves to be kicked off with a feast, doesn't it? And that's exactly what the Lord will do. He will kick it off with a feast, literally a feast for the ages. And so we're going to dive in. We're going to look at all the images there. And by the end of it, I hope that your heart is bursting out of its skin and just ready to go to this feast that the Lord has prepared for us. Let's look first at the venue for the feast, which is given to us in the first few words of verse 6. First three words say, on this mountain, and that is the venue. Isaiah has been talking about a mountain for a while now. He's mentioned it three times, and the third time was in the chapter previous to this. This is the mountain of the Lord, which Isaiah has told us a few things about at this point. And what's rather important is Isaiah refers to the mountain of the Lord as Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the hill that Jerusalem is on. Uh, But interestingly, Ezekiel gives us another mountain that is the mountain of the Lord, and Moses gives us still another. And comparing the three can show you how important this mountain is. So Ezekiel speaks of the Garden of Eden as the mountain of God. He refers to it once in Ezekiel 28 as the Garden of God and then as the mountain of God. This is the paradise where we once dwelled with God, but because of our rebellion, we were cast out of it. Right? And this is kind of how we look back to Eden, right? That place we were once at, we were once with God there, it was wonderful, now we've been cast out of it. That's Ezekiel's picture of the mountain of God. Well, in the course of time, Moses would come to refer to Mount Sinai as the mountain of God. This is yet another place where God met with his people, but there was a difference. This time, only Moses could go up. All the congregation of Israel saw the Lord in his terrifying glory there. And they said, Moses, you go talk to him. We are going to stay down here. Thank you very much. That is frightening. And indeed, the Lord even said to them, put a barrier around the mountain. Do not even let an animal set foot on this mountain. If one does, you've got to put it to death. Nobody but Moses comes up this mountain and dwells with me. Moses ascends the mountain. He receives the law and he brings it back down. So the second mountain of God is one where God comes to meet with us again, but we're kept back from it and we can't go up to it. You see the progression of the first mountain we were cast out of. Second mountain we've got to stay far from, but at least God's there giving us his ways and, and, and that Moses got to go see him. That's good. Isaiah's mountain is the third and final mountain of God where God meets with his people. This is Mount Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. This is where God comes and dwells with his people. And you might be surprised to know, travelers who go there are often underwhelmed at this. It's actually not the highest hill, or it's just a hill, it's not a mountain, Um, and it's not all that glorious. You walk up it and you're like, wait, that hill is even higher than this one. I've never been there. I'm talking like I have, but that's what people say when they go there. Well, Isaiah says in chapter 2 
that a day will come when that mountain is lifted up above all the others. So we're talking higher than Everest one day, Mount Zion will be. And he tells us some other things about it too. One is really fascinating. All the people of the earth, the pe- all the peoples of the earth, will go up the mountain and receive God's wisdom. Now, do you see the difference? First mountain we're cast out of. Second mountain, we can't go up that one. This one, all peoples of the earth are invited to go up and be with God. This is a new and different thing that God is doing. We ascend the mountain, we speak with God, we sit with God, and we learn his wisdom, it says in chapter 2. Chapter 11 says that because of this, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. We will go up, receive his wisdom, bring him our most perplexing questions, and he will answer them, and we will bring the knowledge of the Lord to all of the earth. And then in chapter 24, we're told that God will rule from this mountain. The Lord will rule from the top of this high and lofty mountain. Now in chapter 25, it says, on that mountain on the mountain of God, the mountain that we can ascend, the mountain that is higher than all other mountains with grander views than you have ever seen when you were driving through the Smoky Mountains and stopped at the overpass or when you were out in the Rockies or if any of you have tried to brave a mountain like McKinley or Everest, grander views than you have seen there, a mountain where the sages of the earth can ascend with their most perplexing questions and have them satisfied and answered. A mountain where Jesus Christ rules from it in glory, a mountain where healing water flows down and all can drink freely from it, a mountain on which trees of life grow and their healing fruit is exported to all of the nations. It's on that mountain that the Lord would be pleased to gather all of us together as we sit and eat the healing fruit and drink the life-giving water and look out over the grand vistas. This is better than any wedding venue you have ever tried to book. This is the mountain of God where we will be gathered together. The next words tell us who the host is, and you've probably already figured it out. The Lord of hosts is the host. Now, when this day is spoken of in Revelation... The Lord is there as bridegroom. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the Lord Jesus is there as groom. These words speak of him as also master of the feast. So we see together that he carries both of these titles of honor. An ancient wedding would have two seats of honor at it. The master of the feast, who was in essence paying the bill and making the thing happen. Of course, he was honored and respected. And then the bridegroom. Unlike our weddings, they didn't revolve around the bride back then, they revolved around the groom back then and his smiling face as he received a bride that he was to delight in. Well, the Lord sits in both of these seats, master of the feast and bridegroom receiving his spotless bride. Isaiah focuses on him as host of the feast. The Lord of hosts will make this feast, it says. To call him the Lord of hosts brings to mind the many angelic and heavenly creatures that he has created, only a few of which we know about. There are probably many, many more. Some created to serve us as the church, some created to serve him in his temple, and the vast employment they will have at this feast we really can't imagine. 
Will they be wandering around bringing trays? Will one of them come by like the guy at the Brazilian grill and just shave off some more meat for you? Will they be setting things wonderfully? Has he created entire creatures just to manage the decorations of this feast, perhaps? We don't know, but we know he is the Lord of hosts, and he has a vast array of servants at his disposal, greater than the staff of any restaurant, greater than the staff of any catering house. We will have a true army caring for us and meeting all of our needs at this feast as the Lord of hosts invites us up the mountain to sit down and to dine with him. The next words tell us who the guests are. It says the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. That's the guest list. Now it does not say all people. It says all peoples, right? Your translation probably has an S there. That's a very important S. That means it's not every human being that will be there. Every human is invited, but not everyone will accept the invitation and come. To say all peoples is to say all tribes, all tongues, all nations, all types of peoples. And that means that more than any international gathering you've ever been to, there will be all sorts of languages represented there. Languages that sound different from ours, and when they're written, look different from ours. And we don't understand them now. We just say, wow, that looks beautiful, right? Well, just, a, just an array of all these languages there. Skin color that ranges from the darkest to the lightest. Hair color ranging from bright red to blonde to brown to everything in between. Musical cultures that we do not even know exist right now that perhaps use scale degrees and time signatures that we don't know about and can't imagine all gathered. Will there be saris there? Will there be headdresses there and robes and suits and ties and all sorts of wonderful cultural garments just all gathered together, sitting down together? And we will look on the display of God's glory and the variety that he has made humanity. And we will wonder at what he has made. That's the guest list. Now, we have a few pictures of that that I want to stop and dwell on now. Because this is really one of the glories that God has this guest list of just so many different kinds of peoples and cultures. And there are a couple of really glorious moments in your life that kind of point to that. And I want to point them out. One of them is coming up soon, the opening ceremonies of the Olympics. Uh, most of us sit down and turn into couch potatoes for the Olympics because they're awesome. Uh, and part of that is not just because of the incredible athletes, but all the nations in the world come and gather together, right? And at the beginning of it, there's so much festivity, and we sit and watch on our TVs as they do these wonderful theatrics, and then they march all the nations of the world in, don't they? And they're all wearing all these wonderful garments that are so different from ours. And then the United States walks in wearing Ralph Lauren stuff, and then the next nation walks in wearing their stuff, and it's all, it's all different and beautiful and wonderful. And that's like the only time I can sit down for four straight hours and watch TV without being interrupted because it just grips you, that glory and wonder. That thrill that you get if you get it when you watch those ceremonies is just a little picture of what you will experience when you, Christian, are one of the people brought in, gathered into God's halls and arena, and sit down together with all of these glorious, redeemed people who are so vastly different from you. Just a little picture of it. 
The other glorious picture we get of that is actually in this weekly gathering on Sunday morning. Uh, God has been pleased to bless our church with, I think, probably a, a greater international presence than a lot of churches, and we thank him so much for this. Uh, have you stopped to think ever that upstairs we have one language represented, here another, and then a third across the street, all on our church grounds every Sunday morning, three languages represented, and at least between the three gatherings, ten different nations represented in our regular meetings here. Upstairs, at least Mexico and Ecuador, probably more. Across the street, South Korea. And here, if I can remember them all, the United States, England, South Africa, Haiti, Bulgaria, India, and I'm missing one. Can you? Nigeria and Nigeria. Yes, seven nations gathered together very often in this very room. What will it be like when there are hundreds of nations gathered together in the room, feasting together as brothers and sisters, praising Jesus Christ. I hope your heart just bursts out of your skin and wants to be there. It makes me want to be here more and see what the Lord does here. It makes me even more want to be there and see what the Lord does. So we're one line in. Anybody want to go? Right? Does this not sound like the greatest place ever? It will be the greatest place as yet in history until he does inaugurate the kingdom. And we haven't even talked about the food yet. You want to see the food? All right, let's look at the food. Next two lines give us the food. The second and third lines of verse 6 say, A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. This is the spread that is put upon the Lord's table and served to his people. I wonder if you can remember the best meal that was ever put in front of you. And if you can remember how much it cost. It's probably exuberant, right? I, I used to work at a restaurant where I learned very quickly that you can spend a lot of money on meat and on wine. I uh, worked at one of the fanciest steakhouses at the time, the most expensive major chain restaurant in the whole world, and I would roll up to every table a cart full of all the different cuts of meat, and I would show them this steak and that steak and the difference, and here's the fish that we're serving tonight, and show all of it to them. Each of these cuts of meat were $50.00. And you just got the steak on the plate for the $50. Then you paid another 10 bucks for your baked potato and more for your salad, and you could rack up a bill pretty quick. Well, then I would leave the table, and I would leave them with the wine list, which is bigger than most books that I own in my library, and full of bottles from all over the world, ranging in price from $40 to I think the most expensive one was $3,500. And so on like my second day, I figured out, you can really spend a lot of money on wine and on meat, can't you? Like, this is, the, this is the most expensive stuff the world has to offer. Well, the Lord says, you have seen perhaps good meat in your life, but not like what I will prepare for you, he says, right? A feast of, it says, rich food full of marrow. This is the very best meat that the world has to offer and of aged wine well refined. 
Jesus says the kingdom is being prepared for us from before the foundation of the world. Is the feast being prepared for us from before the foundation of the world? Is this, is this the best meat ever served in history, saved for this day? I don't know, but it's better than anything that you and I have ever enjoyed before. And there is a word here for those of you who are in wisdom choosing to abstain from wine now because it can be kind of weird to live your whole life abstaining and then read imagery like this and be like, what am I supposed to do with that? I don't, I don't really know what direction to take that, right? So some of you are choosing to abstain from all alcohol in order to avoid sin, right? You don't want to fall into drunkenness and so you're just you're saying no thanks. That's wise and good. Others of you either have a history or perhaps a family lineage and genetics that make you think, well, if I take a little, I'll probably take too much, and so I'm just going to abstain completely. And I want to guide you and just show you what you can get from this. On this day, by this point, your heart will be made new, and there will be no risk of falling into sin. And so some of you maybe can't even sit at a table with a glass of wine in front of you without the temptation being too strong. On that day, that'll be gone, done with. It will not be possible for you to sin in drunkenness. And so you'll sit there, the Lord or one of his servants pour you a glass, and when you taste what the Lord has prepared for you in that cup, you will look back on what you were passing on here and say, I didn't miss much, right? When you taste how good what the Lord is saving for you is, you will realize that what you are giving up here is small because the greatest, that $3,500 bottle of wine that I never did sell, by the way, at that restaurant, uh, that is nothing compared to what the Lord is saving up for you. This is just a little bit of the hope and the patience that God can give us as we sometimes have to give up good things here in the world to walk in righteousness. Those of you giving it up, you're not missing a thing compared to what is coming for you in the new kingdom. Let's move on to the announcements that are made at the feast. Now, when kings would throw feasts like this, big banquets like this in their halls, uh, usually they would do it to announce some big thing that was happening. Uh, maybe the marriage of their son, and it would be a wedding feast, or maybe the ascension of a new king coming to a throne, or maybe some grand announcement that is going to bring a new age and era on the kingdom. And the bigger the feast, the bigger the deal, and the bigger the announcement. And the Lord does this here, too. He is going to make some declarations that will change history from that point on forever when we are gathered in his halls and hear his words. He'll make three declarations that will change everything for you and will take away all of your sorrows. The first one is in the first four lines of verses 7 and 8. Let me read them for you. We'll be gathered there, and here's the announcement. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. This is the first grand pronouncement we will hear from the voice of God as we are gathered together. As it says in the last line of verse 8, for the Lord has spoken. These are his pronouncements. This is what he is saying. Now, every good feast that we have today, in some small or large degree, death just kind of hangs over it, right? It's, it's hard to eat a birthday cake after a while 
without wondering, how many more of these do I have? Right? You don't think about that on your eighth birthday, right? but on your 65th birthday, you start thinking, how many more birthday cakes am I going to get to eat before it comes for me? And that hangs over your head with every birthday you try to celebrate. And maybe you take you and your spouse go out for an anniversary dinner. And on your second and third anniversary, you're just having a great time. By the time you get to 25th, 35th, 45th anniversaries, you start wondering, how many more of these have we got? And all of a sudden, even the food doesn't taste as good because you're wondering, am I going to bury her or is she going to bury me? And that covering, that cloud, just hangs over every good thing that we try to share together. Even Emily and I sometimes feel this way. We'll celebrate our 12th anniversary, which I know some of you guys laugh at, (laughs) 12 years, but we'll celebrate our 12th anniversary coming up. And sometimes it just hits me to sit there with my beautiful young bride and think, how how many years do we have? It, It will end at some point. And all of a sudden, the the cake doesn't taste as good because you know it's going to come to an end. Death hangs over us like that and has a way of ruining every feast that we try to throw, every good thing we try to do. It whispers in your ear when you go back for a second piece of cake, don't do that, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to gain weight. It's going to kill you one day if you keep doing that, right? You, can't, you feel bad going back for more and enjoying the feast because your body is fragile. And one day, our bodies will go back into the ground. And we have a picture of the way that impending death restricts us and drives us crazy from the last year. Uh, now, now, think about the imagery that the Lord is giving us here. He speaks of death as a covering that is cast over all peoples, a veil that is spread over the nations. This is a veil that reminds us of our fragility and no one wants to put on. This is what it feels like to have to put a mask on because if you don't, you might breathe in some microscopic thing that will kill you. Now, I know some, things, some people felt like that was a good idea and some did not. I've yet to meet a person that thought they were comfortable and wanted to wear them, except actually in the cold, my daughter said it kept her face warm. Other than that, I've never heard anybody say they actually wanted to wear this, right? We do not want to walk around with every breath restricted and feeling all tight in like that and all that moisture collecting on your nose. Nobody likes that. Nobody wants it. And of all the ways that it taunts us and restricts us, it reminds us that, well, you need it because if you don't wear it, either something could kill you or you could hurt somebody else, right? Even the praises of God were muffled for months in this room because we were all wearing masks. We try to breathe in and sing and it's Right? It just didn't work. You couldn't breathe out. You couldn't do it. This covering of death hanging over us. And then some of you are waiting for the day when you can just take the thing off and run through Walmart. And some of you know what that's like, right? Some of, some of you have felt what it was like to say, okay, I'm safe now. This thing is coming off. And you take a deep breath and you say, oh, that's over with, right? That covering is swallowed up. There's at least one thing that can't touch me anymore and a number of other things can. I want you to know that that relief that you felt that day is just a teeny tiny picture of the relief that you will feel when the Lord makes his pronouncement, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And that hovering cloth that hangs over us is just snatched away. 
You will breathe like you have never breathed before. You will find relief like you have never felt before. And then we will say, this God is worth waiting for. That's just the first pronouncement. Death is going away. Second pronouncement comes in the second line of verse 8. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The Apostle Paul writes that Christians are a people always sorrowful and yet rejoicing. We rejoice because we have something to look forward to. But the Christian life is just full of sorrows. Ecclesiastes tells us how perplexing the world is and that our sufferings and sorrows and the injustices of the world, just add, they don't add up. They don't make sense. The Psalms lament over and over again how bad the world is. You can't get through the Bible without getting a picture of how awful this place is now, how many sorrows it is filled with. There's a psalmist in Psalms 42 and 43 who senses how cut off he is from God because he's kept away from God's mountain in Zion. He says, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? He's weeping. He has no food, and so his tears are all the food that he has, and the taunting of his enemies are being hurled at him while his life is risked. Now, he is longing to be back up on that hill in Jerusalem in safety. What he is longing for, we find here as we go up the hill, we sit with God, death is swallowed up forever, and all of our tears are wiped away. You're not going to make it there with dry eyes. You will make it there with your eyes moist with tears. And in fact, I want to point out there are actually some scenes in the Bible where people are crying out in heaven. You may not make it through heaven without crying out to God. Now that perks some of your eyes up. Wait, wait a minute. Tears in heaven? Hold on. You want to see it? Let's turn to Revelation 6 together. You'll see people who are crying out in heaven. Okay, this is in God's throne room in heaven where the saints have been gathered together. This is Revelation 6 again. We're going to read uh, verses 9 through 11. This is the picture that John sees. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne. So this is in heaven. This is people like Jim Elliot, like the apostle Peter, like Martin Luther, people who gave their lives for the testimony of the gospel. He sees all their souls gathered together. And here's what they're doing in verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those that dwell on the earth? So there they are crying out to God, right? Our our blood, the ground is crying out with our blood. We have died. How long will this go on? And then what they're told is not, oh, I'll stop it right now. No, he says, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. 
So you see here that they have rest and they have white robes given to them, right? They're in a good place. They're in paradise with God in heaven. But the sorrows of their lives have not been resolved. The Lord has not made all things right yet. And they are crying out to God, how long until you make this right? And his answer is chilling. I'm not going to do it yet because I've got more of my people that are going to die along with you. And he may be thinking of us in this room. He may be thinking of missionaries that we sponsor. He may be thinking of Bush and Carol over in Hong Kong. We don't know who he's thinking of when he says it, because there are more martyrs appointed. And so these martyrs rest and they cry out to God, how long? So we make it through that intermediary state. We make it to the final supper. And there is where the Lord says, there I will wipe your eyes clean. There I will wipe away all tears. Can you picture you're sitting at this feast and the Lord himself walks by in his royal garments. And you remember what you have done in your life, right? We all look back in our lives and think, okay, that was dumb. That was really wicked. You know, we got things we look back at. When you see him in his royal garments, that's going to hit you even more, right? The bigger picture you get of God's glory, the the weightier your sin is to you. And I wonder if seeing him in his garments will just call all of this to mind and you will just weep over your sin. And you know what the Lord will do if that happens? He will take his scepter from his right hand and put it in his left hand so that with his right hand, he can wipe your eyes and say, child, that's the last one of those. No more tears. If you make it all the way, your your heart's still raw from the sufferings in this life. The very worst moments of your life still there in your memory and not made right yet. And you stand before the Lord and you say, this is what happened to me. And he takes his scepter from his right hand and he moves it to his left and he reaches his hand and wipes your tears and says, no more of those. Come into my happiness forever. This is the sort of pronouncement he makes at the marriage supper of the Lamb as we go up the hill and gather with him. And there is yet a third. It is in the third line of verse 8. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all of the earth. This speaks to the shame and the scorn that God's people bear. Now, we all have shame because of our sin, right? Anybody, if somebody looked you in the eye and said, I know what you've done, and you believed them, you'd get a little, ooh, man, they know what I've done, right? Because you've got shame over your sin. That's not all that's being talked about here. God's people have special senses of shame hurled upon us that, that are unique for two reasons. One is because the Lord has enemies who hate him and who hate us and how they love as they reviled the Lord as he went up the hill and was crucified, how they love to revile us as well, right? Even in our day and age, how some of the newspapers love to paint us to be the most backwards and bigoted of people. This is how it goes in all of the ages. That's one reason the Lord's enemies love to hurl insults upon us. The other reason we bear shame is that some of our brothers and sisters do some very shameful things. 
Some of them probably imposters, others of them genuine Christians that we call brother and sister who have done things that make us look even worse than our enemies could paint us. And so with our enemies reviling us and our crazy uncles not helping us out very much, we bear some shame and embarrassment as a church. We have to look back and think of the Corinthian church, which was was called a church, Paul called them saints, where they had one man sleeping with, I think it was his mother-in-law, the whole church rallying around him in pride. They were all acting with hatred for each other, and they were oppressing the poor together. And Paul calls them brothers, right? Even all their shameful conduct, they're our brothers. And through the ages, God's people have led crusades, enslaved people, and used the Bible to try to do it, and even today say ridiculous things on the internet claiming that the Bible backs them up. Some of them imposters, but some of them are brothers and sisters, and we just got to bear with that, don't we? Like, oh man, it's not easy. And I wonder if it embarrasses you. It certainly embarrasses me. Well, that shame we will continue to bear as long as we are a people, but there is a day when it is gone away, and it is when we are up on that mountain and the Lord takes away all of our shame and reproach forever. Then all the world will see who was on the right side of history. Then we will not be derided anymore, for as it says, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so here is a day when our desire to sit down together and eat will be met in the fullest. A day when our desire to see death done with and all of the tension that has put in our hearts over the last several months is gone. A day when our tears are wiped away. Those of you that mourn will mourn no more on this day. A day when our shame and embarrassment as God's people is taken away as we are brought to rule in his holy kingdom forever. So when that day comes, we will look back and say, that was worth the wait, right? And that's what verse 9 tells us. I'll just read it to you quickly. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is the spirit of those who will one day be at that feast. How do we act today if the Lord is going to bring us to that feast? We wait. How do you act in holiness when insults will continue to be thrown upon Christians? How do you stay holy in that? You wait. Because one day we'll be vindicated. How do you stay holy When one person you love is taken from you by death and you know it will come for you soon, how do you stay holy with that haunting you? You wait because he will swallow up death forever. If in God's providence you go hungry, how do you stay holy when you're hungry? You wait because the best of foods is going to be laid before you one day and you will never suffer again. That is the spirit of those who will attend the feast one day. We wait. We say, I can walk in holiness today because good things are coming to me. Let me close by 
just outlining how Jesus makes all this possible and inviting you to follow him and to attend this feast as guest and as bride. All of these things can happen because all the problems they solve are in the world because we rebelled against God. Every problem we've talked about today would not be there if we had not rebelled against God. There was no hunger in the Garden of Eden, was there? You just pick something and you ate it, but now there's hunger. There was fellowship in the Garden of Eden, but we were cast out of it, not able to go up to the mountain and be with him. There was no death there. There was no shame there. There were no tears there. Once we sinned against God, all of these things have come upon us. If you want to think of sin as the root of a tree, all these other things are branches, right? Death, sorrow, hunger, poverty, oppression, all these things, right? Branches of the tree where sin is the root. What Jesus did when he came to earth was he just chopped down the whole tree. Now, there are points in the Gospels where you see him chopping branches, right? He'll heal somebody of blindness. He's chopping one branch, but he's doing that to say, I own this whole tree and I can do whatever I want with it. This is why one man, I believe it's a blind man, comes up to him and he says to the man, not open your eyes and see, but he says, your sins are forgiven. Why would, why would he do that? Well, because the two are connected. The blindness wouldn't be in the world without sin. And so Jesus solves the greater problem and forgives his sin. And the Pharisees say, how can you do that? How can you forgive sin? And he said, I'll prove it to you. Open your eyes and see. Right? He's showing that he has dominion over all sin. He has conquered the whole thing. And he would ultimately do this by living a life of no sin, but paying the price for it anyway. Right? He would live. He would never sin. And yet, he would die willingly. And he would be cut off from God willingly. And he would shout from that cross, I'm thirsty, I thirst. He would do that willingly. He would do all these things bearing the penalty for our sin. And we can receive the benefit of that if we would trust him to secure it for us. If, you're, if you would place your trust in Jesus, which I call you to do, even right now, if you'd place your trust in him, you would find a day when every effect of your sin and our sin in your life is done away with. Hunger, done. Oppression, done. Sadness, done. Your need for forgiveness, done. Your exile from God, done with. Why? Because Jesus conquered it for you. So I call you, turn and place your trust in him. The Lord sends out his invitation. Come to my feast all peoples, all who are willing. Will you ascend the mountain of the Lord and sit down and dine with him? Let's pray.